Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, Janelle Calderon has a story for us on Senate Bill 386, a measure that would guarantee laid-off hospitality workers the right to return to their old jobs with their old salaries and benefits intact. After that, Sean Galanka has a story on prisons in Nevada opening back up for visitation. They were closed for 14 months because of the pandemic, and Sean talks to some of the people who are going to get to visit their loved ones again after more than a year. And at the end of the episode, we hear from assistant editor Michelle Rendells and reporter Riley Snyder on all of the goings-on at the legislature this week as we navigate the final month of the 2021 regular session. This week, we have a sponsor for the podcast. We'd like to thank United Health Group for supporting the show. If you'd like to sponsor Indie Matters, email Stacy, that's S-T-A-S-Y, at theNVindie.com. SB 386 is a bill that guarantees some workers the right to return to their jobs if they were laid off during the pandemic. The bill has been exempt from legislative deadlines due to disagreements between union and businesses. Our own Janelle Calderon has the story, but first we'll hear from the bill's sponsor, Senator Nicole Cannizzaro. If we want Nevada's economy to come back stronger than ever, it is critical that we make sure that our workers are a key piece of that comeback that our workers are taken care of. And that is why I'm here to bring to you Senate Bill 386, which provides that it is in the public interest to ensure that the state's casino, hospitality, stadium, and travel-related employers honor their former employees' rights to return to their former positions. That was Senate Majority Leader Nicole Canicero during a testimony on her bill SB 386, also known as the Right to Return, which would guarantee thousands of tourism and hospitality workers who were laid off during the pandemic a chance to get their job back. Workers like Mario Sandoval, a waiter at Binion's Steakhouse in downtown Las Vegas, share a similar story. They were laid off or furloughed when the world was flooded with uncertainties as it dealt with a pandemic, watched the industry and community struggle, and saw a light at the end of the tunnel. But many are still waiting to get back to work. Here from a restaurant worker, Mario Sandoval. I've been receiving unemployment, but back when we were getting the beginning of 1000 a week, I was still like $750 in deficit. If it wasn't for me living with my daughter, I don't know what I would have done. And in that aspect, it makes me think about families that both were working in the food industry, have children, we just need to get back to work. These companies just need to do the right thing and get us back to work. The Culinary Union has a condition in its contracts that a company must recall laid-off workers by seniority before hiring anyone new in that job classification. This right to be recalled to a full-time job in most contracts is valid between six months up to two years from the last they worked, meaning employees would be protected even if they had not worked for six months or up to two years, depending on the contracts with the company. SB 386 aims to help those tourism and hospitality workers who may not be covered by the union return to work. During the bill's hearing last month, the committee heard opposition from major chambers of commerce, Southwest Airlines, Board Gaming Corporation, and Caesars Entertainment, objecting a provision of the bill they said would cause unnecessary litigation. 
as it would allow workers to bring civil actions against employers who do not comply with the requirements of the bill. Here's Senator Keith Pickard. My concern is if an employer were to say, you know, they laid off a thousand people, they don't anticipate uh, the uh, uh, hotels filling up overnight as, or at least as quickly as they dropped off, that the employer is likely not to hire on every employee that they laid off uh, on the same day. And so now they're going to have to face a court to justify why they laid off a certain person um, uh, and then why they didn't hire them, at least within the 30-day window uh, that they're afforded here. McCarran International Airport announced that it saw nearly 1 million more domestic flight passengers in March, a 60% increase compared to February. And Nevada casinos made more than $1 billion in gaming winnings last month, the state's highest monthly gaming win in eight years, according to new data from the Nevada Gaming Control Board. We know those companies are going to open. And they're going to open soon because June 1st is coming and buildings are supposed to change the mandate to 100%. And that's when they're going to see money. We're a well-trained staff at ready to go back to work. We don't have to train you, you know, or many others. We're just ready and waiting. We just, we just need to get back to work. I've been waiting all this time because there, there's no little other jobs that are in my line of work right now. Even with these new places, you know, I could apply, but I'm 56. They're going to look at my application. I'm not what they're looking for. I can't start a new career. There's something beyond that. I got six more years so I can retire. And I want to retire with a little dignity. Sandoval stood by the company through economic ups and downs the city endured through the years. But in January, he found out he and several of his colleagues had been terminated after being furloughed and not working for months. He fears for himself and colleagues in other properties that companies won't stand by their longtime employees and instead hire new people at a lower wage. Bethany Khan is a spokeswoman for the Culinary Workers Union. We cannot have a full recovery in Nevada without workers who make the number one industry in Nevada, which is hospitality, tourism, but, and so cannot be cut out or left out of the recovery. And so a Senate Bill 386 really ensures that workers have the right to return. They won't be penalized and, you know, abandoned by their employers. Khan also told me that 50% of the 60,000 union members have returned to work, but the other half are still waiting. Virginia Valentine of the Nevada Resort Association said that as more people are vaccinated, especially hospitality and tourism employees, capacity limits are lifted, and demand is on the rise, the companies have called back employees as needed. This week, Wynn and Encore Resorts and the Cosmopolitan of Las Vegas have met vaccination thresholds in its active workforce, over 80%. The Nevada Gaming Control Board allowed their casino floors to operate at 100% capacity. There have also been several job fairs for hospitality jobs around the valley. SB 386 remains in its early stages, being worked on by the Senate Committee of Trade and Labor. It received a waiver, so negotiations could continue past legislative deadlines between the committee, the Culinary Workers Union, and hotel companies.
To keep up on SB 386 and all the other bills going through the legislature, stick with us here at the Nevada Independent. This segment was reported and produced by Janelle Calderon and was edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Michelle Rendells. In 2020, there were over 12,000 inmates in Nevada, and since March of that year, inmates have not been allowed outside visitors. The Nevada Department of Corrections, also known as NDOC, recently announced that it would open up its prisons for visitation again starting May 1st. Sean Galanka has been reporting on the story and sat down with me to talk about visitation starting again, how families have been reacting to the news, and how families not being able to see their loved ones has affected them over the past 14 months. All right. So, Sean, you have been talking to to a lot of these people that have been not able to see their spouses or, or, or their family that's been incarcerated for, for 14 months now. So to start off, I just want to ask, when did the Nevada Department of Corrections announce this, this reopening to be able to do visitations? Yeah. So I've actually I've been tracking this kind of all the way through. I sat in, listened in on a uh, board of prison commissioners meeting on April 20th. And during that meeting, the, the Nevada Department of Corrections director, Charles Daniels, he had announced that the, the department was planning to reopen visitation on May 1st. That actually came as a, a bit of a surprise to, to some of the folks that were attending the meeting. And has this been a pretty, have there been a, a lot of people signing up to do this? Has it been pretty booked up? So demand has actually been fairly low on, on Friday, April 30th. This was obviously before things were, were fully rolled out. It was still early in the process, but a department spokesperson told me that seven, 70 appointments had been confirmed for the month of May with another 118 pending confirmation. So that's a bit less than 200 total appointments for the month of May. You know, I, I imagine that, that more appointments have been scheduled or, or asked for since then. So you mentioned, you know, that there are restrictions. What, what do those restrictions look like? I think about about a week after they originally announced reopening, they announced this phased plan to reopening. So the first phase, there are some pretty significant COVID restrictions in place, safety restrictions to prevent spread of the disease. One one restriction is that everyone who who comes to visit has to have a negative COVID test that's administered right before they visit. They they want people to arrive 45 minutes to an hour before their visit so they can take this test. There's temperature checks. Uh, there's also restrictions on the visitors themselves. Visitors have to be at least five years old. Additionally, it's only two visitors per inmate. And at pretty much every facility, there's only one visit allowed per month for an inmate. So, so those restrictions are, are in place. There's also various other ones that are kind of just what we deal with out here in the world, with like social distancing and mask wearing. At some facilities, there's going to be clear partitions separating the inmates and the families. And one pretty significant restriction is that there's no physical contact allowed between inmates and, and visitors at all. So a mother can't go in and, and hug her son wife can't go in and, and kiss her husband whenever they go in to visit. And, and that's a concern I've, I've heard expressed from, from a lot of these families so far that I've talked to. And so the second phase of the plan happens when at an individual facility, 75% of the inmates are vaccinated. And that kind of starts to, to ease the restrictions that are in place. Once a facility gets to that point, inmates will be allowed to have three visitors per per visit. And visitors will, will be allowed, those two years and older will be allowed to visit under, under that second phase of the plan. The third phase of the plan happens when an individual facility gets to an 80% vaccination rate among its inmates. And that's kind of when all the restrictions go away and it becomes sort of like 
normal visitation pre-pandemic times under that third phase of the plan. I was going to ask you too about vaccinations at prisons. You know, I don't think a lot of people understand exactly how that's been going on. How have prisoners been vaccinated? Has it been pretty um, accessible for them? What are the numbers looking like there? There's been kind of a, a lack of clarity about that. A lot of the, the families that I talked to, they express concern over a lack of transparency about vaccination numbers. There was even a point where some some inmates believe that they would have to be vaccinated in order to to be allowed to have visitation, although that was kind of walked back by NDOC. And so you don't have to be vaccinated in, in order to visit with your family. But there's at the, the April 20th Board of Prison Commissioners meeting, the, the department's medical director had reported that about 11% of inmates had received either their first or both doses of the Moderna vaccine. And another five or 6% had received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And that was on the 20th of April, about a week later on the 27th, they put out an update on their Facebook page that showed about a third of, of inmates at NDOC facilities had been vaccinated or had been at least partially vaccinated rather. And that doesn't lag far behind the Nevada you know, state numbers, but a lot of these families that I, I, I connected with these families through an organization called Return Strong, which is an inmate advocacy group. I've, I've heard some hesitancy, some vaccine hesitancy in the prison system. A few of these women had had husbands or sons who had contracted COVID during the outbreak at Warm Springs Correctional Center, where 90% of the facility population had COVID at, at one point in time. And, and I think for them, they, they've kind of expressed this as, as led to a, a sort of distrust between inmates and what the, the department staff is, is telling them. And so those, those vaccination numbers are around the 30 something percent now, but even talking to those families, there were a couple who, who said that their loved ones who are incarcerated do not want to get the vaccine as of now. And so that, that remains an obstacle towards expanding to the next phases of the plan where you need 75 and 80% of a facility to be vaccinated in, in order to, to ease those safety restrictions. And then I guess I, the last thing I want to talk about is the, these women's reactions. You talked to five women who, who have family members in the Nevada Corrections Department in, in prison. What were they saying? What were their reactions like? How, how was it talking to them? So it was it was really a, a lot of hesitancy, actually. A lot of these restrictions are, are burdensome to these families. One woman I spoke with, Jen Graham, she's a Reno resident. Her, her husband is at Stewart Conservation Camp, and she, she had found out she was pregnant only a couple of weeks before her, her husband was arrested. And so he's, he's been in prison this entire time that, that their daughter's been alive. And, and their daughter, she, she just turned one years old in, in April. And, and now she's still not old enough to meet this visiting requirement in order to, to meet her father for the very first time. He is serving three to 10 years. We are about just over a year and a half into his sentence. So he'll be up for his first parole hearing in September of next year. You know, my concern with the whole visitation thing, I have a few of them actually. So we have four children, one of which is only a year old. He has not met her yet. And so the whole thing with not being able to have anybody under five visit is very, very hard for us. You know, if that were the case, assuming he gets his first parole hearing, he wouldn't be meeting his daughter until she's two and a half years old. And that's pretty rough. Another part of that is that with having four children, if we wanted to all go visit him at this point, we're unable to do that as a family. 
because of the two person restriction that they have going on right now. So it would take us like four months to get all of his kids to visit him. And currently two of our children are in Indiana. And so, you know, if we were to fly two of them out here, they wouldn't even be able to visit at the same time. Another part of it is we um, sent in our visiting application quite some time ago, just I think just under a year ago. And my visiting application still hasn't even been approved yet. So I spoke to somebody from NDOC yesterday, actually, who told me that they've got a year backlog of visiting applications. So this whole time that they've been shut down to visiting for COVID, they haven't been processing anything. So between them having the year-long backlog and having to do background checks, she said it would probably be a few months before we can even get approved at this point anyway. So, you know, it's, it's hard not having seen him in over a year and a half, and they don't have video visitation where he's at, so he hasn't even seen his little girl move at this point, and it's just, it's pretty hard. What one other woman I, I spoke with, Misty Stewart, she's a, a Carson City resident. Her son is incarcerated and she has custody of her seven-year-old grandson. I, I have a son, obviously, that's in prison and I have custody of a seven-year-old son. And so to take him in there and him not be able to, I mean, there's not a lot you can do to stop him from wanting to go and hug his dad after not seeing him for over a year when we used to see him on a regular basis every weekend. And then to take away, and I understand like some of it, why we're taking thing, certain things away because of the virus or whatever. I mean, I get that, but like taking away the games and taking away all the stuff that they normally do when they're there. Like I can tell you as a mom watching her son with his son, like they found all kinds of ways to be creative and to play and have these parental moments. And like, even that's going to be taken away. And one woman, Nicole Williams, her, her husband is at Warm Springs Correctional Center. Nicole has a two-year-old daughter. And, and again, that's just that challenge of visitors have to be at least five years old. So she can't bring her daughter to, to go visit her husband. We miss the human contact. We miss, you know, the weekly, monthly, you know, whatever it is, being able to, you know, talk and, and talk to our loved ones and see them and touch them. My husband's at Warm Springs. He too had COVID. We were never able to see him prior to COVID. I do have a approved visiting, you know, application and form. And so it's just a matter of, you know, getting in there now, but I have a two-year-old. So in all reality, I mean, he wants to see me, but he wants to see his daughter more than me. Yes, it's once a month, but it's what, six prisoners, two visitors. I mean, they just make it so it's unrealistic and, you know, unattainable. And, and some of the other reactions that I've heard from, from people, uh, Sylvia Reyes, her son is at Northern Nevada Correctional Center. She, she kind of expressed that, that her son has just had a lot of anger over not being able to, to visit. It's, he's been shut off from the outside world for, for all this time with no visitation for, for 14 months. And during the, the pandemic, a lot of times in these prisons, there's been lockdowns because of cases. People inside of the prisons have been shut off from one another. And so not having that visitation and not having any of that, that physical contact, that human connection has been a challenge, a struggle for a lot of these people on the inside of the, the Nevada Department of Corrections. It's really affected him immensely. It's, it's, it's been a battle for him to stay positive and to stay out of trouble because of the anger of not having the contact with the family, you know, and not having the visitation with anybody, you know, I mean, 
even his friends that will be approved to visit him were stopped, you know, and now they're having to go through all of this. So it's, it's been a mental, a mental battle, you know, to stay positive and to stay upbeat. All right. Well, Sean, thank you so much for all of your reporting. And I'm sure we'll have more information as this story progresses. Thank you, Joey. There's less than one month left of the legislative session. And as always, there's a lot happening in Carson City. So here to break it all down for us are two members of our intrepid legislative team, Riley Snyder and Michelle Rendells. Thanks for joining me, you two. Thanks for having us, Jacob. Yeah, thanks, Jacob. All right. So I think the one thing on a lot of people's minds, certainly a lot of legislators' minds, is the budget. So this week we heard from the Economic Forum, who tell everyone how much money the state has to spend. What do they have to say? Yeah, so the Economic Forum, for those who don't know, is a panel of five private sector economists who are appointed by the governor and members of the legislature. They were put in place in the 1990s to kind of give lawmakers and the governor sort of a neutral budgetary standpoint. And their job essentially is to take a bunch of tax revenue forecasts that are made by a variety of sources in the legislative branch, the governor's branch, uh, third party analytics firm, Moody Analytics is what the state uses, and basically forecast how the state's taxes are going to do over the next two years. It's a very difficult job because imagine trying to like predict your utility bill two years from now, right? Like there's a lot of things that could happen, but they have to try and do the best job that they can. And notably, the legislature is required to build their budget and the governor is required to propose a budget based on their recommendations. Nevada has a constitutional requirement to have a balanced budget, so the legislature can't spend more than they bring in. So they had their May meeting on Tuesday of this week. This is essentially a revision to the meeting that they had in December, which is where the initial budget is built on on those revenue projections. And the news was nothing but good. I think everyone we had talked to beforehand really didn't expect revenues to go up as much as they did. The final tally in terms of new revised upward tax dollars that they now expect to come into the state for this current fiscal year, which ends in June, and then the next two fiscal years is around $910 million, which is really incredible. Most of the economic forums that we've covered in the past have been in the tens of millions at most. So it's kind of changed the trajectory of the session from being one that's about austerity and figuring out where to do budget cuts, do lawmakers try to like push through a tax increase to try to balance the the budget and meet prior spending obligations to now where lawmakers have money, they have wiggle room, they can kind of do more things uh, than I think they initially anticipated. Yeah, the story has really shifted. You know, the last time this group made a prediction, we hadn't even approved a vaccine. (laughs) So, I mean, a world of difference now that, you know, half of Nevada's population or something like that has been vaccinated against COVID. And the story has really shifted from just doom and gloom to sort of how crazy are people going to be spending all this money they're going to be having? I mean, we're talking everything from this child tax credit that's going to be kicking in in the summer and giving parents of children literally thousands of dollars just 
money. There's the stimulus checks and there's, you know, a hiring blitz going on. There's just so much pent up demand to come to Vegas and, and a lot of spend disposable income that people have not been able to spend as much during the pandemic. So all of these forces are really combining to put Nevada in a much better position in the next two years than we were thinking we would be in five months ago. So it's not just the economic forum that's a good news for the state's budget. There's still a couple billion dollars of memory serves of federal money that was allotted as part of the American Rescue Plan. Do we know where that's going to go yet? We really don't know where that's going to go. And part of that is we are waiting for the U.S. Treasury to define the terms of that money. What is an acceptable expense? How long do they have to spend it? All sorts of things like that. So we're really waiting on that. That could come pretty much any day now. And from there, the state really needs to define what are the ways that we're going to invest this money that are one-time expenses that are really going to make a difference in the state of Nevada and that aren't already supported by some other stream of money because there are upwards of 90 streams of funding flowing out of the American Rescue Plan. Certain expenditures are limited just to schools. Certain expenditures are simply for rental assistance and others are for mortgage assistance. So you don't want to spend $200 million of general funds on mortgage assistance if you've already got this large pot sitting out there. So they really need to figure out, get their bearings on what they have from other sources and what is not covered that would benefit from this pot of money. We've heard some kind of broad strokes ideas about what this might go towards. I've heard a lot about infrastructure related to IT. So there's a number of huge technology projects. One, of course, is Dieter upgrading that system. That's an expense of probably $45 million or more. We've got a system they want to build to try to manage grants better. So we're actually getting more grants from the federal government. I've heard people saying maybe we should spend this money on residencies so that we can build up our workforce of doctors. Some people are talking about childcare infrastructure. So there's a whole a whole bunch of broad strokes ideas uh, floating around. But I do think it's going to take some time for people to really strategize because they want this to be a transformative investment in the state of Nevada that really sets the state up for things, you know, for a really bright future and just changes the game. <laughs> and, and that's not always the most easy thing to think about because you can just see what's immediately in front of you and maybe you're not dreaming as big. So I think there's a, a lot of time that they need to kind of figure out what's the best way to use this money. So that's a, a lot of budget talk for one podcast segment. So is there anything not budget related that happened up in Carson City this week? There, there was. So our colleague Megan Messerly uh, did a wonderful job covering the hearing on the state-based public option bill that I have and forever will call Canizaro Care because of that naming scheme always makes me happy. So that was heard for the first time on Tuesday. And so that's one of the major remaining pieces of the puzzle that I think will come down in terms of how the end of the legislature shakes out. We saw today that the Innovation Zones study, recall this is the proposal from the governor's office that would let a private company, Blockchains, form their own quasi-county governmental structure on land that they own in Story County. That was introduced today. I believe Senator James Ornshaw told Michelle that that might get a hearing next week. We're still waiting to hear about this big energy bill from Senator Chris Brooks. I think now, well, it's Thursday and there's no more floor meeting scheduled for this week. So it should be coming out next week. That'll be another big policy focused issue that comes up in kind of the last weeks of the session. 
Okay. Well, lots to keep our eyes on as the session winds to a close here. Riley Snyder, Michelle Rendells, thanks so much. Thanks, Thanks Jacob. so much, Jacob. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Janelle Calderon, Sean Galanca, Michelle Rendells, and Riley Snyder for being on the show this week. Leave us a review wherever you listen. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, we're on every platform. Also, share the podcast with a friend or on social media. It helps the show grow so we can continue to bring you fantastic interviews and updates every week. We have a new monthly newsletter for the podcast. It's called Soundcheck, written by me with contributions from the rest of the team. It highlights the best of the podcast, as well as interviews that didn't make it onto the show. We also have recommendations for things to read, watch, and listen to from our staff, and much, much more. Subscribe today by clicking the subscribe button on the right side of our website. Email us with any questions, comments, concerns, poison oak remedies, superhero hot takes, or whatever else is on your mind. You can reach me at jacob at theenvyindie.com, and Joey is at joey at theenvyindie.com. Reno Band People With Bodies wrote and performed our original theme song. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find them on Spotify or Bandcamp. There was additional music in today's episode from Lance Conrad, Storyblocks, and some original music from me, Joey Lovato. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Today's show was brought to you by United Health Group. Man, that is a loud leaf blower. <laughs> so loud. Is it? Like, I just don't get it. <laughs> it's a turbo leaf blower. They have the strongest leaf blower of all time. Also, who leaf blows at 2 p.m.? <laughs> it's hot. <laughs> it's... Anyways. <laughs> what kind of monster leaf blows at 2 p.m. on a Thursday? <laughs> it's, I mean, the hubris. Um, <laughs> he's still going. He's still How going. How many leaves can there be? <laughs> There's not many leaves in Vegas.